Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. So welcome to Behind the Knife. We're the HPB team. I'm Dan Nelson, and I'm joined by uh, my co-hosts, uh, Tim Vreeland, Lexi Adams, and Connor Chick from uh, uh, Brook Army Medical Center. And then we have a, a new member to our team. We'd like to welcome uh, Beth Carpenter, a research resident from uh, Brook Army Medical Center as well. Um, today, we're going to be talking about colorectal liver metastases. Uh, Beth, do you want to get us started? Yes, absolutely. So just to put it into perspective, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer and a leading cause of death due to cancer in the U.S. The liver is the most common site of metastasis, occurring in approximately 50% of those affected. We know surgical resection provides the best opportunity for survival and cure. With the many advancements in management of colorectal liver meds in the past century, we have what we hope is a great discussion today. So um, we're first going to start off with a case Um, So we're seeing a 59-year-old male with a history of T3N1M0 right colon adenocarcinoma that was diagnosed in 2021. He underwent a right hemicolectomy with adjuvant Fulfox, and he had his one-year colonoscopy two months ago, which was normal, but on his most recent CT, he was found to have a four-centimeter liver lesion um, that's presumed to be a recurrence, and he was referred to our surgical oncology clinic. So, Lexi, would you um, talk us through how you'd proceed with this patient's workup? Yes. So, of course, you would start with a standard full history and physical exam, and then I would review the CT of his, what should be his chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and then make sure he has an interval CEA level. Okay, great. So, a patient's otherwise healthy, no comorbid conditions, and he has a good functional status. His abdominal exam demonstrates evidence of a prior laparoscopic surgery, but it's otherwise normal. A review of his recent imaging demonstrates the four centimeter hypodense lesion on portal venous phase imaging in segment five that is consistent with a colorectal liver metastasis. His recent colonoscopy you confirm was normal and his CEA is 2.7. So Connor, what are your thoughts about um, a normal CEA level in this patient? So in this patient, uh, I would ideally want to know what his CEA level was when he initially was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, the fact that it's normal doesn't mean that this uh, liver lesion is not a site of metastasis because 40% of, uh, in 40% of patients, the CEA level can be normal. Yeah, I would, I would just add on to that that CEA is generally not super reliable. So, you know, in our last podcast, we talked a lot about CA99 for pancreas cancer. Uh, I would not put CEA in the same boat as that for colorectal liver meds. It can be useful but it is very often not. And it's never really been validated that the trend of CEA is actually meaningful. Everybody checks CEA. It's very reasonable to do on your oral boards. You should certainly do it. But in clinical practice, we kind of track it, but it doesn't really change decisions very often. Dr. Nelson, um, when would you consider getting additional imaging for preoperative planning? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of points. I mean, one, from a staging perspective, uh, PET certainly isn't a replacement for diagnostic CT or MR, but, um, and the NCCN guidelines do not recommend routine PET CT, but it would be indicated and value added to evaluate, say, equivocal findings on a diagnostic CT or MR. Um, and that being said, in this patient with potentially surgically curable M1 disease, I would perform a PET CT 
uh, to rule out occult extrahepatic disease. Um, in regard to liver specifically, I personally prefer a three-phase liver CT for operative planning. Uh, but that being said, MRI does provide superior imaging resolution, particularly when combined with an intravenous extracellular or hepatobiliary contrast agent, um, and is actually preferred over CT in the NCCN guidelines to assess number and distribution of metastatic foci. Yeah, the, I think the imaging is interesting and controversial, Dan. Like, I think if you ask 10 surgeons, you're going to get 10 different answers. I almost never use PET scan in a case like this because... Anything that you can see on a PET, you're going to see on a CT. And the PET, in my mind, is really to tell you whether or not it's active. If you didn't see anything on the chest CT, then I would not do a PET, but I do think a lot of people do. One thing I was always taught is MRI is notoriously bad for segment two of the liver because that moves when the diaphragm moves. And so you can miss things in segment two um, because of that. CT is notoriously bad after a lot of chemo, in particular, uh, TCAN, so full voc or full theory, I'm sorry, uh, because it makes the liver really fatty. Uh, CT, I think misses things more often when there's a really fatty liver. So that's where, um, the MRI I think can be more helpful in, you know, my typical algorithm like you is to get a CT first. And then if there's like stuff that I'm not sure about, then I might chase down an MRI, the hard thing is that you want to be consistent. So, you know, I think if you're going to use MRI, you got to get it up front before any chemo is given. Because otherwise, if you're mixing mixing imaging modalities, I think it just gets confusing. Those are great points. Okay, great. Um, for the group, is there anything else we should discuss before considering our preoperative workup complete? I also think in addition to imaging, it's a good opportunity to bring up uh, during this discussion of the initial work of uh, determination of tumor gene status for RAS and BRAF mutations, either individually or as part of a next generation sequence panel. And in addition to those, uh, determination of tumor NMR and MSI status uh, should be attained if not previously done. Okay, perfect. So um, now that we've finished discussing preoperative workup, let's talk about treatment options. We know that an R0 resection provides the best opportunity for long-term survival, which first requires a discussion about resectability. Dr. Vreeland, is there a basic framework here that you could share? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the classic teaching on resectability has to do with FLR. Um, but honestly, I usually start first with looking at the health of the liver. So, um, you know, the health of the liver and the health of the pa patient. So, you know, you want to obviously look at their ability to tolerate a big operation. Um, not every liver surgery is necessarily a big operation. Isolated liver met, you might be able to do this MIS. Uh, and so most patients are going to tolerate that. But if it's something where I have to do a modified Makuchi, that's a big incision, big recovery. You know, pringling is a lot of stress on the heart. So patients have to have a healthy heart, et cetera. Uh, and then you look at the liver. So, you know, everybody talks about like MELD score and things like that for, for cirrhotic patients and hepatocellular carcinoma for colorectal liver mets, it's often going to be more subtle than that. Right. I mean, if somebody has true cirrhosis or, you know, if they're going into the, if you're calculating a MELD, it's probably not good for colorectal liver mets. Um, and they may not be operative candidates, but usually it's more that you're just looking for signs of portal hypertension. So they're, you know, Billy Rubin will likely be normal, uh, their LFTs will generally be normal. Their INR will generally be normal because they don't, you know, they don't have frank cirrhosis. But the things you want to look for, particularly in a patient who's had a lot of chemo. So this patient got their adjuvant full FOX and, you know, that oxaloplatin can be toxic to the liver. 
Um, so you want to look for signs of portal hypertension. So first thing I look at is the spleen, look for splenomegaly over 12 centimeters is the number I use. Uh, and then other signs of portal hypertension, hy- excuse me, portal hypertension, uh, recanalization of the umbilical vein. You look for kind of just too many, um, collaterals in the omentum and in the lesser sac, uh, things like that. And then, um, if the caudate or left lobe are hypertrophied and the right lobe looks too small, there are specific calculations on that, but a lot of times you can just kind of eyeball it and say, yeah, that, that looks like a cirrhotic liver or early cirrhosis. Um, and then, you know, if all that's okay, then that's where you go into your basic, um, resectability, which, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more when we talk about when there's multiple lesions in the liver. But the point is even in a solitary lesion, you know, going through all that stuff, just to make sure you're dealing with a healthy liver, um, I think is always a good idea. Uh, Beth, so I've, I've kind of alluded to this already, but, uh, talk to us about what chemotherapies affect the liver and what they do. Um, so I would worry specifically about a patient who received oxaliplatin, um, which can specifically lead to sinusoidal obstruction or um, the quote unquote blue liver, um, as well as someone who received irinotecan, which can lead to steatohepatitis, which uh, Dr. Vreeland referenced earlier. Yeah, good. And how much chemo is enough that you start worrying about that? Um, I think it's about two months. Yeah, two or three, depending on who you read. But there's uh, the kind of seminal paper on this was by Dr. Vote uh, from Anderson. And uh, in that in that paper, they talked mostly about three months. Um, and then, you know, rinotecan, you really have to worry about when they have a high BMI or metabolic syndrome. Most people start to worry really about three months. So that's when you really want to watch how much chemo the medical oncologists are giving if you're planning to operate on that liver. So I usually restage the patients at two months and then kind of allow them to trickle into that third month while I'm planning for the operation. But I try not to give three more than three months of uh, that heavy chemo uh, if I'm planning to operate after chemo. We just finished talking kind of about the physiologic fitness and liver health of a patient. Um, we'll next move into kind of considerations of biology. Um, Lexi, are there any existing scoring systems to predict survival after resection of colorectal liver mets? Yeah, so there's actually many different scoring systems, but by far the simplest one and the most widely used one is the Fong clinical risk score. And that is composed of five different binary yes or no variables that can predict survival after surgery. And um, many papers have also used it to help uh, decide if there's need for more adjuvant therapy um, or other um, treatment decision-making. So those five binary variables include uh, whether there's a node positive primary, the disease-free interval was less than 12 months from the primary to the recurrence. If there's a greater than one tumor, a pre-op CEA greater than a 200, or if the largest tumor size is greater than five centimeters. And you can use this to predict one year and five year survival um, after metastectectomy and um, stratify them into low versus high risk uh, for surgery. So Lexi, the thing that I would add to, you know, the Fong clinical risk score and the, and the different uh, risk calculators that you brought up is, is what I've mentioned earlier with looking at the mutational status of, you know, BRAF and RAS mutations. Um, Tim, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, Dr. Vote is one of my, you know, mentors and he really pioneered a lot of the RAS mutation data and now has kind of moved beyond that. 
to you have kind of a list of mutations that are the most common, which includes RAS, RAF, which are kind of coupled together because they're within the same pathway. And then P53 is the other one that's really common. There are a couple other that are less common, FBXW7 and SMAD4. And all of these have a negative prognostic indicator. Uh, And and what's really been interesting recently is that the co-mutations are even worse. So if you have a RAS mutation, you do a little bit worse. If you have a P53 mutation, you do a little bit worse. If you have a RAS and a P53 mutation, you're going to do much, much worse. And then, you know, if you have, you throw in like a SMAD4 mutation on top of that, those patients really do poorly. And so I think, you know, it's still, it's still early and we're learning more and more about this, but, you know, at some point we may get to a spot where, there's a score calculated based on your mutational burden. And some patients, you may say, listen, you're not going to benefit from surgery. And so, you know, when you, you know, when you talk about all this mutational stuff, what does it really change clinically? You know, we may get to a point where we say, listen, your mutational burden is so high that I, I don't think surgery is in your best interest. The flip side of that is that there are now, you know, drugs that are going to, that are going to specifically target RAS mutations uh, we already have BRAF inhibitors. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the other exciting thing about all this mutational analysis is that we're going to develop more and more therapeutics that are going to directly target, target these mutations. And, you know, we're not going to just be giving everybody the same chemo uh, in the future. We'll be targeting it based off their mutations. That already happens to some extent, but I think that's only going to happen more and more. And there's, you know, there was actually just a, a recent publication by Dr. Kawaguchi with Vote, a senior author, uh, about this mutational score. So if people are interested in that, uh, you can Google Kawaguchi Vote, you know, colorectal mutation, and you'll find that paper. We'll make sure to link all of the articles we mentioned during the podcast in our show notes. Um, additionally, if you want to hear more from Dr. Vote and other giants in the field of HPB, we've also linked a few episodes from both PTK and the HPBA podcast in the show notes as well. So at this point, we've talked about the physiologic and liver fitness of a patient. We've also talked about some biologic considerations. Um, and then finally, we'll move into technical feasibility um, Connor, can you talk to us about how you might operatively approach this lesion? Sure. So some basic considerations are what part of the liver is this in? Is a central or peripheral? Um, basic concepts of, of uh, resectability for liver masses is, is one. Um, another consideration would be whether this needs to be an anatomic resection or whether you can do a parenchymal sparing resection. Um, and that mostly is a question of anatomy more than uh, oncologic um, adequacy, there's, uh, there is some pretty good data suggesting that, uh, parenchymal sparing resections are oncologically equivalent to anatomic resections. And so the formal anatomic resection is not mandatory, uh, for these colorectal liver metastases. Another thing to think about, uh, would be open versus minimally invasive. Um, there again is, is good data that, uh, shows that minimally invasive resection is safe, um, particularly in the hands of experienced surgeons. There are certain parts of the liver that are more amenable to minimally invasive hepatectomy. So for example, uh, left lateral segments um, and some of the right anterior uh, segments tend to have an easier time with MIS and do have decreased length of stay and equivalent, uh, otherwise equivalent complications. Um, and so there's there, there may be benefit to the patient's recovery for MIS resection if it's anatomically feasible, uh, but certainly um, open 
uh, hepatectomy for these lesions is, is still very common. Um, in terms of margins, the important thing to consider is just obtaining an adequate margin. You really need an R0 resection for this to benefit the patient in terms of survival. Um, but there's been no, uh, no definitive data to suggest that any, any specific width of margin is necessary for uh, disease for your overall survival. Connor, just real quick, why is why is a parenchymal sparing operation better? Like if you, you know, if you're going to do a big wedge or do a right hepatectomy, you said that a the anatomic doesn't offer any oncologic benefit, but why does the parenchymal sparing offer the patient benefit in the long term? So a couple of things. Number one is it offers them a physiologic benefit because you retain more liver parenchyma, especially in patients who have already received chemo or are going to receive more chemo. Um, and the other thing is there, uh, there is potentially an opportunity for decreased bleeding complications with parenchymal sparing resection versus anatomic. Connor, the, the big thing is salvageability, right? These patients have a, are mm-hmm. at high risk of having recurrence. So um, not necessarily at your margin, but within the liver itself. So if we can, the more liver we can preserve, uh, knowing that in the future there is a fair chance that they will recur, they then we have the opportunity to to salvage them with future resections if possible. The other thing I wanted to say, Tim, um, regarding anatomic and parenchymal sparing, um, I think this is a great point that came up and is something recently that you and I were writing. Not all parenchymal sparing means a wedge resection, right? There are patients that, uh, or there are uh, parenchymal sparing that are still anatomic, right? So if a patient has a, a right lobe lesion, uh, a, segmentec- a segmentectomy is, is parenchymal sparing compared to a right hepatectomy. You want to remove the tumor without, without removing or with removing as little functional liver as possible. Yeah, totally agree. And then the last point I would bring up, Dr. D'Angelica, who's the president of HPBA, he's a memorial. He always talks about the fact that basically the mortality for a parenchymal sparing hepatectomy in well-trained hands should basically be zero. Whereas the mortality for a right hepatectomy, uh, if you look at like NISQIP data is somewhere around 5%. And so, you know, doing a right hepatectomy is not ho-hum. And if there's no reason to do it, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Just to conclude our discussion, uh, Connor, are patients with extra hepatic disease ever candidates for resection? They can be, uh, particularly patients who also have a solitary lung met that would be amenable to uh, parenchyma sparing or wedge resection. Um, The other category would be patients who have very limited peritoneal disease, um, although obviously this would have to be confined to just one area and easily resectable. Um, And goes without saying, too, that these are highly uh, selected patients um, but it is an option. Uh, yeah, yeah, Connor, I think that's well said. I, I would just add that the biology of lung mets is different than other extra hepatic disease. So the overall survival of a patient with minimal lung disease is, is pretty good. And what I would say is that they don't typically die from their lung mets. And so, you know, a patient with a solitary lung met, I would not 
you know, consider that a contraindication to a liver resection by any means. The, the places that are real contraindications, like you said, maybe limited peritoneal, but that's more controversial. But if you have like portal nodes that are positive, if you have aortic chain nodes that are positive, you know, kind of this multiple areas of the, uh, of the abdomen with positive nodes or like a pelvic node from a rectal cancer, that's where, you know, doing a liver resection is just not going to help the patient. Okay. And just to conclude this discussion, Lexi, what are your thoughts about whether or not this patient should get chemotherapy? Well, this is a pretty controversial question for a patient with resectable hepatic metastases. Uh, There's actually no randomized data that shows that this patient would benefit from getting chemotherapy. Many surgeons and oncologists would still recommend giving chemotherapy. The generalized consensus is to give them about six months of perioperative chemotherapy, and the timing of that also is controversial. And that's... um, category 2B or just expert consensus, level consensus um, uh, within the NCCN guidelines. Nobody loves chemo more than me, but um, this patient who has less than one, you know, that probably is like four months out from their adjuvant chemo. I don't know that I would give this patient chemo. You know, I think they just got their adjuvant chemo. Um, If this tumor grew on Folfox, then I would be kind of worried about what am I really doing here? So in that case, I might want to give them a different chemo and make sure the tumor shrunk. You know, the six months of chemo is, is yes, how you treat patients, but that's really kind of dogma based. You got to ask yourself, what are you trying to do with the chemo, right? So if you have a patient who's five years out from their adjuvant and they have a small peripheral liver met and you can take it out pretty easily and then just watch them, I think it's very reasonable to do. And like Lexi said, the randomized data would really say that that's probably fine. Uh, if you have a patient who's six months out from their colon resection with four mets and you're like, man, I don't know, this could be really bad. And they have a, you know, uh, RAS, a P53 mutation, et cetera. You got to see that kind of that growth arrest a little bit before you go do a big operation. So, you know, I agree that the question of whether or not the standard patient with resectable colorectal liver mets should get chemo the randomized data would say it doesn't make a difference, but it's so nuanced. You really have to think about the scenario and what you're trying to do with the chemo. So I think that's a good segue for a modification of our case. Now, in addition to the four centimeters uh, met in segment segment five, um, our patient additionally has a three centimeter metastasis in segment two, a 1.2 centimeter metastasis in segment three, and a three centimeter uh, lesion in segment six. Um, So Lexi, what's the most important um, consideration here? So hearing about all these multiple lesions and different segments of the liver, you want to calculate what your future liver remnant is or FLR. uh, And that's the amount of liver that would be left after completing resection. Uh, This is typically calculating, calculated using CT bolimetry, uh, and then you can standardize this uh, because the measured uh, FLR volume on CT um, can be uh, have a wide range of variability. So you standardize this by dividing it by the total liver volume, which is a standardized calculation based off a patient's body surface area. And then typically you're looking for a future liver remnant um, you use the 20-30-40 rule, and for a healthy uh, patient with a normal liver, uh, you would need at least 20% of their uh, of a future liver remnant to, in order to avoid 
uh, major complications or hepatic insufficiency in the future. And then if a patient's received hepatotoxic chemotherapy, such as irinotecan or oxaliplatin, you want at least 30% future liver remnant, and then those who have cirrhosis, you want at least 40%. So Lexi, just to be clear, can you tell us, you know, what you actually need to count that part of the liver as part of your FLR? Right. So in order to be included in the FLR, it has to have at least two contiguous segments. And then of course it has to have uh, uh, inflow and outflow as well as bile drainage to those segments that are intact. And I know listening to or the surgeons um, at our institution, they often go and t- sit down with the radiologist to make sure that the radiologist understands what parts we surgically have to take out or not to make sure that they are accounting for all the volume that we'll take. Yeah. And that inflow outflow thing is not, you know, it's not to be dismissed because one mistake that surgeons make in the operating room is that they, they might, you know, leave part of, they might take the inflow to segment four and then leave part of segment four and think that that's going to save them from having a borderline FLR. So, you know, if you have to take the inflow, you might leave some of that parenchyma and it might do fine long-term, right? Again, there's collaterals between the segments and things like that. And so you can certainly leave that, that, you know, little bit of extra liver and long-term that may help. But early on, when you're trying to avoid post-epitectomy liver failure, you cannot count on that parenchyma uh, to be normal. It's just not going to be. So I think that that's actually a a big mistake that gets people in a lot of trouble. So, um, you know, be careful about that. Great. Um, Connor, what surgical options are available if a patient doesn't have an adequate FLR um, and has bilobar disease like our patient here does? So for patients that don't, already have adequate FLR, there's a couple options. Uh, One that's probably used most commonly is portal vein embolization or PVE. And uh, the way that works is essentially, which the goal is to embolize the portal vein of the diseased side of the liver in order to induce hypertrophy of the non-diseased side, or at least the minimally diseased side. Um, And this usually can achieve pretty decent results. Um, it does depend on the growth rate as far as predicting their, uh, PVE is going to successfully hypertrophy the non-diseased liver enough to achieve adequate FLR. Um, but it can be a good option for a patient like this. So one of the other options that I've read about Connor is the ALPS procedure or associating liver partition and portal vein ligation for staged hepatectomy. How is this different from PVE? The concept is very similar. Uh, the difference, of course, is that it's it's a uh, an open operation as opposed to endovascular. Uh, but the goal is to uh, limit portal flow to the disease side and, and increase uh, portal venous flow to the, the to the side that you want to grow. So, what, just to clarify, the, the big difference with Alps is that you you know when you cut the liver down the middle you take away the collaterals from one side to the other. So that's one of the complaints about PVE, right? Is that you, you take away the the flow to the, let's say the right side, but there's going to be some flow across from the left through collaterals. And those collaterals are actually going to grow after you do the PVE. So, you know, there's ways to deal with that by spraying microspheres out into the whole distribution of the right portal vein. But that's why ALBS gets more hypertrophy because you actually completely cut all those collaterals the downside is that there's a much higher mortality with ALPS and PDE. 
got to Vreeland with bilobar disease and um, these multiple lesions, would you now consider a neoadjuvant? You know, this is where I do think that neoadjuvant is a good idea um, because you have a lot of disease and you want to see what's going to happen. You know, what you're really doing at that point is one, you're, you know, treating micrometastatic disease, trying to just like in pancreas cancer, you're trying to prevent them from developing additional lesions elsewhere in their body, et cetera. Um, but really you're, it's a study of biology. You're trying to understand, is this chemo responsive disease where I can actually go for a cure or is it not, you know, if they, if they grow five more Mets while you're giving them full Fox Erie, then your surgery is not helping them. Uh, and then at times you can also shrink the tumor. So, you know, the goals can be different based on very specific considerations, uh, of that patient's anatomy, right? So the way you listed out the lesions, I'm thinking, you know, these are all probably going to be fairly peripheral, but let's say that segment five lesion is actually very close to the right pedicle. And if you could get it to shrink back a little bit, you know, you might save the patient from a right hepatectomy. You know, that's where, um, that's where neoadjuvant could really be advantageous. If they're all peripheral and can easily be wedged out, do you need neoadjuvant? Probably not. You know, again, the downside to neoadjuvant, some people talk about is that you beat the liver up too much. And so, uh, again, I think, you know, restage at two months. And then if everything looks good, that's where I'm looking at the, the size of the spleen, uh, on that new scan, make sure the spleen's not getting much bigger. And then I didn't mention earlier, but I always look at the platelet count. So if the platelet count is, is down, uh, particularly below 150 in the setting of a big spleen, now I'm worried about portal hypertension. Now I don't want to give any more chemo, even after just two months, if everything looks good, then I sneak a third month of chemo in typically before I go and operate. Um, so those are kind of the, that's kind of the way I typically handle those cases. So just on the topic of chemo, you know, there, there's a lot of options, a lot of controversy, Dan, why don't you kind of talk about your go-to here for, for where you really need a response. So let's again, say there's a younger person with a healthy liver and they have multiple lesions. Let's say one of them is right near that right pedicle and you really want to get a response before you go to the operating room with what's your go-to in that situation. All right, Tim. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, pretty controversial. Um, there's a, a lot of things to be considered here. Uh, number one is this patient received adjuvant therapy after their colon cancer resection, which was full Fox. Um, so that really kind of takes, uh, URTC 4093 out, um, to be used here, which was basically perioperative full Fox, um, in the, uh, you know, neoadjuvant and, uh, adjuvant setting. In this case, the, the, uh, patient, you know, I'd consider the sidedness of the tumor. Um, this was a right colon cancer, uh, if I recall correctly. And so in this case, um, I would probably, uh, combine, um, full Fox Erie and Avastin. It's got a very high rate of, um, of, uh, complete response. Um, and so I think that would be the best, uh, regimen to, to try with this patient in order to get to a place where we can, we can do surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that the, the most recent literature would point to full Fox Erie Avastin being our best chance to get a patient who's unresectable to resectable. Now this patient is probably not unresectable up front, but if, if you're in a situation where you really need a response, I think Wolfoxeria Avastin is the way to go. You know, you have to be careful. It has a lot of toxicity and it really can beat up the liver. So I think you really have to watch the development of portal hypertension in those patients. And you can't, 
you know, I think this is one of those times as a surgical oncologist where you just have to be really involved. Like if you say, ah, oh, this patient's going to get neoadjuvant, come back and see me in four months, five months, six months, whatever, you lose touch with them. We've all seen patients in clinic who have resectable disease and have gotten too much chemo, six, eight months of chemo before they were evaluated by a surgeon and they no longer can have a liver resection because they're now cirrhotic. And this is a huge problem out in the community. There've been multiple studies published on this where, um, you know, patients that never saw a surgeon are retrospectively, people go back and look at their imaging and they had resectable disease up front, but they can't get a curative resection because nobody had them go see a surgeon. So, you know, wherever you can try to advocate for every patient with stage four colorectal cancer to see a surgeon and be evaluated for resection, because, you know, 20 years ago, most people didn't operate on colorectal liver mets. And now we do it very, very often. And so there are oncologists practicing out, in the, out, practicing out in the community who, you know, just aren't aware of that change and may not be sending every one of their patients with liver mets to see a surgeon, but every patient with colorectal liver mets should be evaluated by a surgeon before they start treatment so that we can give aggressive chemo, but watch how much of it that we give. For fellow junior residents out there learning their biologics, Avastin is also known as Bevacizumab, um, which is an anti-VEGF um, antibody. Um, and some of the other biologics that um, have been considered for um, uh, use as well would include cetuximab, um, some checkpoint inhibitors like ipilimumab. And then there's other therapies as well, such as hepatic artery infusion, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, which can be used at experience centers um, for uh, additional therapy. Yeah, Beth, what's uh, cetuximab? Um, cetuximab is a anti-EGFR um, antibody. Yeah, when would you give cetuximab? So um, I would use cetuximab or um, panitumumab as uh, another anti-EGFR antibody um, only for KRAS wild-type tumors. Um, these show right. improvements in progression-free survival and overall survival, but not in patients with uh, KRAS uh, mutations. Super interesting. They did a study where they looked at neoadjuvant EGFR inhibitors in KRAS wild type, and the patients did worse. And I, you know, it still is baffling why that's true. So in the unresectable setting, we give it, and it seems to work. But the in the neoadjuvant setting, the patients did worse. So nobody really uses it in the neoadjuvant setting anymore. But that's one that I think residents could definitely be tested on. So we're going to modify the case again. Um, the patient now has multiple lesions in the right and left lobes of the liver. Several of these lesions are deep in the parenchyma, and they're not amenable to wedge resection. Um, and the patient is currently determined to be uh, unresectable. Um, Lexi, what chemo options at this point could you consider for this patient? So... Assuming that this patient is relatively robust um, and young, they ideally they would get um, the full regimen of fulfoxiri. And fulfoxiri was studied in the TRIBE study, uh, TRIBE, which is the acronym for triplet therapy with bevacuzumab. Um, and that's a phase three randomized trial that compared 
patients with unresectable metastatic colorectal cancer, and they compared full Fox theory with BEV versus patients receiving full theory only with BEV. So the addition of oxaliplatin in the experimental arm. And in this study, they showed that uh, progression-free survival uh, as well as overall survival improved in the full Fox theory group. It is noteworthy that the, these patients were relatively robust in this study and the adverse event rates were significantly higher in the full Fox theory arm, um, specifically including things like neutropenia, uh, neurotoxicity, and diarrhea. Yeah, I, I think the more interesting trial for surgeons, the TRIBE study was big because it was a huge trial, it was 500 patients, but there was a smaller phase two trial called the Olivia trial, and there's another one called STEAM trial. And they looked at patients with, quote, unresectable liver mets and looked at rates of conversion to resectability. And they were they were significantly higher with full Fox theory BEV as opposed to full Fox in the Olivia trial. And anyway, it's not, you know, don't get too caught up in the details, but full Fox theory BEV offers the best chance of resectability. And in that Olivia trial, they had a 50% R0 rate after full Fox theory BEV in initially unresectable disease. So I think as a surgeon, that's the most convincing data to me. So I have a question about that, actually. So how long do you typically wait after completing the bevacizumab before you would consider one of these patients for resection? Right. Six, six weeks is the easy answer. Easiest way to do that, drop bev from the last cycle. So if you're going to give, you know, let's say you're going to do three months, uh, you give five cycles of full foxiri bev and one cycle of full foxiri. And then a month after that, you operate. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but Connor, how might you follow someone currently undergoing chemotherapy for unresectable liver meds? Sure. So the highest response um, seen in this study was around two months. And so uh, you would want to see the patients around this time to get a, the best idea of how robust their response could be. Um, after four months, uh, any separation of the curves sort of drops off. In general, we'll follow these patients about every two months. Um, what we're looking for is not only the uh, a rhesus type response, but their liver function, um, because we know that we're giving combination uh, chemotherapies that are both hepatotoxic, um, particularly when it's given for longer than three months. And the other thing I would say about that is patients like this, um, where you're trying to convert them from unresectable to resectable is really where the PVE and ALPS procedures can really provide you some benefit in terms of uh, being able to get to a place where the patient is resectable. Dr. Nelson, we mentioned some of these briefly before, but in addition to systemic therapy, what other options would you consider at this point? Yeah, so there's a there's a whole grab bag of local regional therapies available from our interventional oncology colleagues. Um, these include percutaneous ablative techniques such as radiofrequency ablation, microwave ablation, or transarterial therapies um, such as chemoembolization or selective internal radiation therapy uh, using yttrium ninety. Incorporating these treatments may allow for downstaging uh, or improving chances of resectability. Uh, for example, if some of the lesions that you mentioned in our patient were small, uh, less than three centimeters, they may be amenable to microwave ablation. Um, and we may be able to combine uh, ablation with surgical resection to make this patient a surgical candidate. Um, it's also important that like in the palliative setting, these therapies 
are important opportunities to provide patients with holidays from chemotherapy. Um, and then you mentioned hepatic artery infusion pumps. Um, this is another intraarterial therapy uh, where a catheter is surgically placed into the hepatic artery, allowing for focal delivery of chemotherapy directly through the hepatic arterial system. Um, and it allows dramatically high do- higher doses of administration of, of chemotherapy while reducing the overall systemic dose. And um, the AHPBA podcast and Behind the Knife both have really fantastic uh, interviews with Dr. D'Angelica talking about the benefits of hepatic artery, artery infusion pumps. Um, so those are excellent episodes, and I recommend listeners to check them out. Okay. So we've gotten our patient to the operating room. Um, Dr. Freeland, would you discuss with us how you plan for these cases? The first thing, right, is like you have to be obsessive about your imaging. So you have to kind of memorize this patient's CT scan or MRI, whatever you have. You have to draw out every lesion. So, you know, this is one of the difficult things about, you know, colorectal liver mets is you may be doing nine separate hepatectomies on this patient and you can't forget one. So you have to be, you know, I'm pretty obsessive about like drawing out my roadmap, having a vessel or, you know, some sort of landmark to, to identify each lesion and then listing them all out, write it all out on a piece of paper, maybe two pieces of paper, tape it up to a monitor in the room, tell everybody in the room, don't let me forget a lesion, things like that. Uh, and then ultimately you're going to go to, go to ultrasound while you're in the operating room to confirm the location of all these things. Um, but I think that, you know, so much of this comes down to, you have to be really good at reading imaging of the CT scan. And, you know, go down to your local friendly body radiologist and go over the scan with them. Make sure you're not missing a lesion. You know, that can get lost in the report. When you're talking about nine lesions, there might be a 10th in there that they forgot to put in the report or something like that. And so, you know, you kind of have to obsessively go over the, uh, the imaging and make sure that you're, you're getting everything. Um, and you're going to do that to decide whether or not you can go to the operating room first, but then, you know, do it again and do it even more before you go, go to the operating room. Um, and then, um, you know, in the operating room, there's a, a lot of stuff where, you know, there's a lot of stuff about communicating with anesthesia and maintaining low CVP. I will say that modern day liver surgery, we rarely use the actual measured CVP, Usually what I tell my anesthesia provider is please do not give any fluid period until I'm done with the parenchymal resection, literally keep them as dry as you possibly can. Uh, you know, I want these patients to be MPO after midnight. I want them to get no fluid in pre-op. I want them to be dehydrated. You know, the less pressure you have in those hepatic veins, the less bleeding you're going to have coming across the parenchyma. Um, and then, uh, Lexi, talk to me about how you Pringle on and off, how long you go, things like that. So... At the beginning of the case, you would place something like an umbilical tape uh, with the Ramel tourniquet around the hepatoduodenal ligament. Um, And then you would place the Pringle by applying the Ramel tourniquet for uh, up to 15 minutes at a time. And you want everyone, either a circulator and or anesthesia running a timer um, to make sure that they keep you on time. And then at 15 minutes, you come off a Pringle for at least five minutes to allow reperfusion of the liver. Um, and before you go on Pringle again, and ideally, How many times can you do that? Ideally, you're minimizing your total time as much as possible. Um, but as far as the maximum amount of time, I think less than 90 minutes is the goal. 
Yeah, I'm going to say something controversial, which is that there is no maximum. Um, and another controversial thing, which is I always Pringle. So there are different people that approach this very differently, right? There are people that kind of um, do a lot of Pringle transaction without Pringle and then go on Pringle. Uh, in my hands, I always Pringle. I think I actually transect the Pringle a lot faster on Pringle. And so your total Pringle time ends up being less than if you wait until you get in the bleeding and then go on Pringle and then you can't see what you're doing, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you, you have to be careful about it, but you can do a lot of Pringle. You know, the, the, after a couple cycles of Pringle, I give a longer break, you know, a 10 minute break in between things like that. Um, and you know, you talk to anesthesia, right? How are they handling it when we come off Pringle? Are they getting hypotensive when we come off Pringle? In those cases, you need to give a longer break, et cetera. Uh, and you know, again, some of the peripheral lesions you might do off Pringle, but I'm pretty liberal with the Pringle. And then, you know, then we have a whole different set of considerations for MIS, right? So now you have pneumoperitoneum, which comes into play, which actually cuts down on your bleeding quite a bit. So I'll do more off Pringle with a MIS resection because a lot of that Pringle bleeding will actually be stopped by the pneumoperitoneum. Um, and then, you know, we could have a whole conversation about things like air CO2 embolus and things like that. Um, but I think it's probably beyond what we can talk about today. Connor, um, so you finish with your operation, you know, what's the thing that keeps you up at night the most, the first two or three days after a big livery section? So the big risk is post-hepatectomy liver failure. Yeah. Um, because in patients that develop this, the mortality increases substantially. Um, certain specific predictors include what your functional liver remnant is going into the operation, as well as uh, bilirubin and INR uh, pre and post-op. The biggest risk factor overall is any sort of postoperative infection. That tends to be the inciting factor uh, that leads to uh, postoperative yeah, failure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're, again, if your bilia or INR are elevated, you shouldn't be doing this operation. That's what I would say about that. Um, you know, you shouldn't be doing big, big liver sections for colorectal liver metastases on cirrhotics. Um, you know, again, it's a different conversation with pedicellular carcinoma, but um, you, really it comes down to your, you know, if you're operating on a healthy liver, they've seen some chemo, just be, you know, generous with your FLR. And then you talked a little bit about the growth rate after PVE. So we can calculate, it's called a kinetic growth rate. And if that's high, then you feel pretty good about the idea that they're not going to have liver failure. And then the reason most patients will get sepsis after a liver resection, what do you think that comes from? So the, the biggest risk factor for infection would be a bile yeah, leak. Probably the most common thing, right. Is, is a, a bile leak after a big hepatectomy, right? So you have to be aggressive about looking for that and draining it. If the patient's not acting right after a couple of days. So, you know, most patients after a liver resection, even though it's a big operation, they should kind of have return of bowel function. Uh, they should be a febrile or white count should be normal, you know, within three or four days. If they're not, you got to be pretty aggressive about looking for a bile leak and draining it. Cause what you don't want is that turn it into a big abscess. Uh, and then getting septic from it in the setting of a borderline FLR. Uh, that's again, another big argument for Prinkmol sparing hepatectomy. You know, I don't typically, I don't even worry about post-hepatectomy liver failure in a patient who I do seven or eight liver resections on, as long as they're all, you know, small wedges that I'm doing Prinkmol sparing because their, their LFTs won't even, you know, won't be that bad. Their Billy won't even bump. 
And so it's, it's really the patients where you're doing like a straight right or extended right, where you're going to worry about this. And so those are the, the cases where you want to be really careful about not leaving a, a leaking bile duct. And, you know, uh, at Anderson, I was taught to do air leak tests at the end uh, to close any bile ducts that were leaking. There are different strategies for that, but uh, you want to be really careful about bile leaks after a, a big resection with a borderline FLR. Okay, so returning uh, back to our original case where our patient has a solitary segment five lesion, he underwent a successful parenchymal sparing resection with an uneventful postoperative course. He was discharged home and subsequently followed up in clinic to discuss adjuvant options. Um, Lexi, how do we handle long-term follow-up for patients with resectable colorectal liver meds? Right. So if these patients are going to recur, uh, we just want to keep in mind that they'll most likely recur in those first two to three years. So our surveillance will be most aggressive in that time period. So uh, every three to six months, the, uh, we get a CT chest abdomen and pelvis with a CEA uh, for the first two years. And then for the subsequent years, you get a CT with CEA every six to 12 months up to the first five years. And then you, of course, get the colonoscopy one year after their primary resection. And if that is normal, then you get it in three years and then in five after that, assuming that you don't find anything additional on those scopes. And um, with the increased uh, aggressiveness of our um, operative criteria for hepatic uh, metastases, uh, survival over the first five years has improved up to 50 to 60% in the most modern um, data looking at long-term survival in these patients. Uh, so they're, they have great um, prognosis in their long-term survival uh, now that we're much more aggressive with our hepatic resections. One, one cool thing I'll just put a plug in for that's coming down the pipeline is uh, circulating tumor DNA or ctDNA. So there's growing data that we can potentially use that to do surveillance in colorectal liver mets, uh, which is, I think, really exciting. And, and that'll probably be the future for you young residents out there someday when you finish your fellowship and you're out. Okay, great. So I think that's all the time we have um, for uh, discussing colorectal liver mets. Um, we'll just conclude by summing up some of the key points from today. So we started off by talking about our patient with an isolated uh, liver met. We discussed criteria for resectability to include physiologic and hepatic fitness, biology of the disease, and technical feasibility. We then talked about a case of uh, bilobar uh, borderline disease, where we discussed uh, the importance of an adequate FLR and some other um, adjuncts to include portal venous embolization. We talked about the consideration of neoadjuvant in that setting, as well as our uh, varied options. And then finally, we talked about a case of uh, unresectable disease and what our management would be of that. So with that, thank you everyone for a great discussion this evening. Thank you everyone out there for sticking with us. Um, hopefully everyone learned something new about colorectal liver mets. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.